Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this morning, first, we want to lift up one of our family members, actually a couple of our church family members. We'll pray for Amy Heron this morning, just sort of this weird, unexplained sickness that's been going on all week that is just really, uh, really tough. And uh, multiple trips to the ER, and uh, Lord, we ask you for healing, ask you to to give either to the doctor's insight into what's going on or just to go ahead and just heal her directly. Uh, just aching for her and hurting for her and her family. Uh, what, a, what a difficult week this must have been, and uh, we pray for some relief. Uh, thank you, too, for what we're seeing in Christian Haas. Just uh, hearing the reports from those that have been able to visit with her is just so encouraging that you are, uh, appear to be bringing healing to her, and um, we're just thankful with her. Uh, family, we are thankful, and as her family, we're thankful. <clears throat> Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for something that I, I don't think that I've ever prayed for specifically from uh, the pulpit at Cross Point, but I want to pray for growth and development in our area. Uh, I do pray for uh, businesses and people to move here. Um, I pray that this will be a place where people will want to live. I pray for a spirit of hospitality in this community, in this area, as others either visit this way or move this way. And really what I hope and pray for is fueling the hospitality is a friendship and partnership between churches, even of different faiths. I pray that we can enjoy and even celebrate different beliefs within the same faith and that we can cheer for each other's success and kingdom work. Pray that pulpits will pray for pulpits. And the spirit of competition that long has been long at work in this area to some degree will be long dead because you killed it. I pray for marriages connected to the pastors who are serving in these different churches and for their families that they'll not be sacrificed on the altar of ministry. But I pray that their families wives especially first, would be first, and their families would get their best efforts. I pray that kids that grow up in the faith and close to the faith won't bail on it because of hypocrisy or dishonesty or folks being very different at church more so than they are everywhere else. I pray for the families in our local churches that will not be satisfied with just showing up and will be less consumers and more worshipers who are enjoying you more and more for who you are, more than for what you can do for us. I'm thankful for this opportunity that we have as a people to lift up very specific prayers, big, monumental, massive prayers, that as we see them answered over time, we can only give you the glory. I'm thankful for the privilege this morning. As much as leading this church in the word, in the journey through the word in the next few minutes. I'm thankful for the privilege of leading this church in prayer. You give us a sweet privilege to come before you this morning. We turn these next few minutes over to you. I pray that you'll be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Glad to see you back this morning. After the last couple of weeks, that's a blessing. Turn to Hebrews. Uh, last couple of weeks were some pretty challenging things that I think we hit in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and I wasn't doubting that you'd come back, but... Uh, it's always, I never take it for granted. We are in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. 
I'll give you a little bit of context as you're turning there. I like to remind us just for 20 seconds or so what our context is before we really climb into it each week just so we don't lose our bearing. This is a letter that's really more of a written sermon from a pastor to his church. It appears that the, the author of this letter, the, the pastor behind the sermon, was the pastor of this church for some period of time and may actually be an ongoing pastor of this church who's just not with them physically. We don't know where he is and we have some sense where the church is. We think it's in Rome. There are lots of indicators that point toward that. <clears throat> if you want to go back and find out what those are, our first few sermons in Hebrews were very context-directed, where we were trying to connect to the context of the book and the letter itself. So you're welcome to go back and listen to those. We believe it's in Rome. We believe it's in a period of persecution, um, definitely the first century, um, Definitely a tough time to be a Christian. They were faced persecution not only from Rome or the Roman Empire, if they're not in Rome, but also from the hands of their family members, also from the hands of the synagogue, the Jews. For when a Jew turned to Christ in their eyes, or at least in the family eyes, a lot of times that would amount to and equate to turning their back on Yahweh. So it was a very difficult time. We climb into their context and we can just imagine some of the things that they faced the difficulties they faced. And apparently, based on the persecution, based on the suffering in the context, they were potentially going to go back to Judaism. We've used the phrase, they were on the bubble. It looked like they, it was unclear whether they were going to go back to Judaism and bail on Christ altogether, which would amount to apostasy, what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, or whether they would go the distance with Christ in a difficult context. And that's what the pastor is calling them to, is keep going. Stay on the train. Continue with Christ. Now, this Sunday we're in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We're going to go all the way through verse 13, excuse me, verse 12 this morning, and then next week we will finish out the remainder of the chapter. <clears throat> I feel like this Sunday and next Sunday are a nice contrast to the last couple of Sundays. If the last couple of Sundays focused on what not to do, don't continue drinking milk was Sunday before last, but grow up. And last Sunday was don't fall away. If the last couple of Sundays focused on what not to do, this Sunday and next, focus on and encourage what to do, what to continue in. It's a very nice balance to the last couple of weeks. I'm going to read chapter, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, and then we're going to come back and do what we traditionally do, unpack the luggage a little bit, and then I'll give you a map for the morning. After that, we're going to look at things that belong to salvation, according to this passage. We've looked at things that look like falling away, so it's a nice thing, a refreshing thing for us this morning to look at some things that belong to salvation. So we're going to look at four of them, two together at first with five application points, and then we're going to pass to distribute our elements and have our supper as we look at the second pair of things that belong to salvation and the application. Okay, so that's our map for the morning. If you didn't follow that, that's okay. You'll, you'll pick it up as we go. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, if you were here the last few weeks, you know it was a pretty pointed couple of weeks. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's unpack this verse by verse, beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I love the heart of this pastor. It's the kind of heart of a pastor that I would like to have, that I uh, aspire to. A guy that's going to hit the difficult things head on, but it's going to be in a context also of encouragement and love and affirmation. This guy has a spirit of optimism about his people. He's a hopeful pastor looking for in their lives the praiseworthy, the commendable, and the lovely. This may be interesting for you to know, just a little glimpse into the daily life, at least of our staff, two of our elders, two of our three, and then the rest of our staff. Weekly, we meet on Tuesday mornings. We have a staff meeting, and how we begin every single staff meeting without fail is in Philippians 4, it goes like this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We begin every week close to Tuesday, beginning, thinking about the commendable and the praiseworthy and the lovely in you. It was a product, really, of, I think, where we found ourselves being very reactive in our ministry for a couple, probably five years, six years. I don't know how long we've been doing this Philippians 4 sort of beginning to our staff meeting, but we found ourselves really in deficit week after week after week, feeling like that was our job to sort of deal with the problems and not keeping sight on the commendable and the lovely and the praiseworthy. And that, week by week, at Scott's leadership, has brought a refreshing air to ministry where we're focusing on things that are praiseworthy. And I hear that in this pastor. He's saying, I'm sure of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. This is a great example for you as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a teacher, if you're a school teacher, as an employer, if you lead any sort of team, if you serve or lead in any sort of way as a deacon or a small group shepherd, to not just focus on shortcomings. That would be to live in the last two Sundays, and that would be a very difficult place to live. But to balance that with the praiseworthy, the commendable, and then to give voice to it, to actually tell your children, this is what I'm seeing in your life. And then when you speak a warning or you speak some some shortcoming into their life, they can better handle it. It's a beautiful picture as a pastor, beautiful picture as a husband or or a wife or a parent or any other role that we may serve. Now, the things that belong to salvation, those will unfold in these next few verses. Let's look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Though they're sluggish and on the bubble, the word that we've looked looked at back in chapter 5, verse 11, is that they are dull of hearing They are sluggish. Our door must be locked out here because we have somebody trying to get in back here. Sorry, to, she's going to be mortified that I just called attention to her, but y'all play like we didn't. Verse 10, go back to that. (laughs) Though they're sluggish and on the bubble, 
Though something has dulled in their hearing, he sees some things that belong to salvation. And the things that he's seeing here that belong to salvation are work and love that they've shown for his name in serving the saints. That's the first two things that we're going to look at this morning later. The first two things that belong to salvation are work and love they've shown for his name in serving the saints. Man, I enjoy that. It's pretty simple when you get down to it. What he's seeing here is commendable. And what he's encouraged with in seeing in their lives is work and love shown for God's name in serving the saints. And something that's really even sweetly, beautifully refreshing from this passage is the encouragement that God sees your work, Hebrews Church. He sees it. He's not oblivious to it. But he actually sees the way you're serving each other in the Hebrews Church. Let's look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. This pastor's desire for his church is that each of them, an attentive and an attention to the individual while he's keeping view of the whole, each of them to show the same earnestness. The New American Standard uses the word diligence, which connects better back to the point there of working and serving, that each of them will show the same diligence in work and love to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Now, something that's a little bit lost in translation here, it's very difficult to bring out in an English translation, but it's, it, it's in the Greek is the sense that the assurance of hope is incomplete in some, in some way in the believer's life, but is being filled up as you continue to work in love. We're going to bring this out more later, but it's just a little teaser for you. Assurance of hope is incomplete and lacking, but it's being filled up as you continue diligently in working and loving. And then in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Sluggish here, the word again was used, the identical word was used in chapter 5, verse 11 in regards to their hearing and was the word dull. Now, why the translators use two different words, I don't know. But it's the same exact word. They are effectively moving in the direction, or he's charging them with not being dull and not being sluggish in their work and love for each other. He's encouraging them to continue diligently in the work and love so that they won't be sluggish. Now, that's interesting. Think about that for a minute. So that they won't be sluggish. That's so that, you hear me sometimes point out what's called a henna clause. In Greek, a henna clause is something that can also be translated in order that. Keep working diligently, keep serving diligently, keep loving diligently in order that you won't grow sluggish. That's interesting. Think about that for a minute. Because a lot of times we use the excuse of growing sluggish for not continuing to work and serve. And what he's saying here, interestingly enough, is that it seems that work and love fuel work and love. Sluggishness onsets when you stop loving and serving. Sluggishness onsets when you're not doing it in the first place. And the last thing he encourages here is to be imitators of those who inherit the promises 
be of faith and patience. We'd be irresponsible if we didn't at least define faith. It's so beautifully defined, just a few chapters over. If you'd like to turn there in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trusting and believing in things that you don't see. And patience is having the, the patience I hate to define patience with patience, but it's going the distance, waiting on those things to be fulfilled. Faith and patience are what he's talking about here are the other two things that belong to salvation. Work and love and faith and patience. Now, here's the context that we need to be reminded of. They can see plenty that says otherwise. This last summer, we had the opportunity to go to Rome and we walked the Roman Forum. We went to the Colosseum, which is right next to the Roman Forum. I didn't even know this before going. The Roman Forum is sort of like this, this uh, patio, that very long structure that has amazing ruins on it. Beautiful. I mean, the ruins themselves are even beautiful. So you can imagine what they must have looked like in this day when this letter was written, we believe, to this church in Rome. I found, too, that the Hebrew section of town was right across the river and just down a ways, but in view of the Roman Forum, right across the Tiber River. I thought, man, these guys, that's what they can see every single day. They can see the pomp and circumstance. They can see power prancing up and down the Roman Forum day after day after day, the Roman Empire in full view and here the pastor is saying, don't live according to what you can see, but live according to what you don't see. By faith and by patience, imitate those who inherit the promises. Man, it must have been difficult for him to encourage, encourage them to live or for them to receive this message of living according to what they don't see. It's about 70 AD is when they begin to build the Colosseum, which was after this letter was written to this church. It took them about 10 years to build the Colosseum. In the mid-60s or so, they started building this colossal monument to Nero made out of bronze. I think it was 90 feet high. And this all sat right next to each other. There's the Colosseum. There's this Colossus. That's what the Colosseum is named after, this colossal structure of Nero. And then there's the Roman form. That's what they can see every single day. Roman power, Roman empire, right in front of them. And this pastor is encouraging them, don't live according to that. Live according to what you can't see and imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. That's pretty impressive, but that will be ruins. I saw them this summer. I can attest to it. They're ruins. The people that heard this letter, though, they weren't. They were massive and frightening, likely intimidating. And he says, don't live according to that. Now, this morning, we're gonna spend the rest of the morning really sort of applying these few verses. Very easy to unpack them. It's not a difficult exposition. But I wanna apply them in a way that has meaning and, and, and sense for us. So we're gonna look at these four things. The things that belong to salvation according to this passage are work and love and faith and patience. Let's spend the next few minutes looking at work and love. 
Let's look back at our passage. I want to keep those freshly in front of us. I don't want you to lose sight of it. Though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God's not so unjust as to overlook your work and love that you've shown for his saints, or for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Work and love go with salvation. We're going to spend the next few minutes explaining that, but I want you to look back at the page before, what we looked at last week. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 is so beautifully illustrated on the page before, we can't pass this up. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is nicely illustrating the point that's being made here. It's an illustration here that, of fruit that accompanies real salvation. This is developed in other places in our Bible. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are products of salvation. They go with Salvation. Matthew 13 is full of example after example that those who are his bear fruit. Let's look at some of the specific fruit that this people had borne in chapter 10. Flip over to chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days, Hebrews church, When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He takes them back to some of the things that they have done in the past and he's encouraging them, go back to those things. Don't stop doing those things. Those things go with salvation. Those are fruit of salvation. This church, apparently, I have to believe, this church heard this message from their Hebrews preacher and it found purchase. I found some early writings. A guy named Ignatius and then a bishop of Corinth named Dionysius. Ignatius said of the Roman church, now we don't know if this was specifically the Hebrews church, it may have been the Roman church as a whole. He said they have the presidency of love. Now this was written a couple centuries later. I hope that tells me that this message found purchase and that they in fact continued in work and love because it goes with salvation. This bishop of Corinth, and his name is Dionysius, said in a letter to Soter, the bishop of Rome, he said, this has been your custom from the beginning to do good in manifold ways to all the brothers, to send contributions to the many churches in every city, in some places relieving the poverty of the needy and ministering to the brothers in the mines. Man, I hope that that is a report. That one came from 170 A.D., likely 100 plus years later after this letter was written to this church. And I hope it's because this message found purchase in this Hebrews church. Work and love because they go with salvation. Work and love are natural concomitants. I like to introduce new words every now and again. 
maybe unfamiliar words. I didn't make this one up, believe it or not. It's a real word. Concomitance, it's a, it's a parking place for a new thought. So don't be afraid of a new word. Concomitance, in this case, is a noun, a phenomenon that actually accompanies something like pain and illness or concomitance of unhealthy living. Concomitance is something that goes with something else. Work and love are natural concomitants like fruit is to a tree with salvation. Like wool is to a sheep, they go with being a sheep. The wool does not make the sheep. The wool is something that sheep do. And here the Hebrews preacher is encouraging them to continue in work and love. And in his mind, that's evidence of salvation. I want you to see, though, this is very important. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, that these are not the cause of salvation. They accompany salvation. This is such an important distinction. This is the difference between getting the gospel right and getting it horribly wrong. I don't know of a sweeter passage in our Bible that so beautifully condenses out the essence of the entire gospel than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So just follow along with me and just kind of look at what unfolds in these 10 verses and treasure with me together what's being communicated here. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's telling them then is you Gentiles, man, you guys were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, but it's not just a Gentile problem. It is a Jewish problem. We are all by nature children of wrath. What he's established right there is also said in Romans chapter three, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We have a terrible human problem. And that's what he's just developed right there in those first few verses. And then in verse four, my two favorite words in the Bible but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, not once we get our act cleaned up, not when we went, once we become sinless, does he now somehow set his love on us? He set his love on us while we are in a mess and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him on that Easter dewy, Easter Sunday morning when he stepped out of a vacant tomb, you stepped out with him if you were in Christ. He raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only did he liberate us from death and punishment, he seated us in a place of honor. This is the scandal of the gospel. Seated us with the victor so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast Man, you got to figure out where works fit into your view of the gospel. 
You need to bathe in this passage if you're still unsure. And see, he goes out of his way to say, works did not do this for you. This is something that God has done for you in Christ, and it's because of his grace. And for immeasurable ages to come, or for ages to come, his immeasurable grace and love would be on display. That's the point of the gospel. So where do works fit in? Look at the next verse. For we are his workmanship. That word there in the Greek means masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. Like you said above the mantle, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You gotta figure out where works and working and loving fit into your gospel understanding and realize they should be product of the gospel, but they should be there. They are concomitants of salvation. They go together. They go together. They are not the cause of salvation, but they accompany it. Work and salvation, or work and love go with salvation. Secondly, God sees your work and love. In verse 10 of Hebrews, let's just go back and keep that right in front of us. In verse 10 of Hebrews, it says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God sees your work and love. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. beginning in verse six. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's a beautiful uh, satellite or parallel to something we've looked at already. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I want you to understand is that God sees your work and your love and everything else. I saw a... um, Facebook post this week that really troubled me. There is a mindset out there that somehow, once you become a Christian, that God has now somehow turned blind to how you move. Let me tell you something. When it comes to salvation, we wear alien righteousness, just like Ephesians 2 just told us. We are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of our own doing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were ugly when he set his love on us. We were dirty. But let me tell you something. Once you become saved, it's not as if he's now somehow turned blind to how you move. While your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west, and while he promises, I will remember them no more, he's not oblivious to how you move and live after turning to him any more than a parent is after they adopt a child. 
A parent adopts a child and says, you know what? I'm setting my love on you. You are now mine. But now that parent is now not how some blind, somehow blind to how they're moving. Man, we got to figure out how these things all fit together. A misunderstanding of this, I'm going to tell you right now, sounds Gnostic. I've talked about Gnosticism a lot from this pulpit because it pervades our thinking more than we realize in our context. Gnosticism was a view that separated the flesh from the spirit, that what happened in the flesh was separate from things that took place in the spirit. So I could do whatever I want in the flesh because my spirit squared away with God. And man, that's a false teaching. And this sounds Gnostic. What I do or don't do is irrelevant. Some embrace this, I think. Some embrace what I treasure, the doctrines of grace, that we, some of the things we've been talking about these last few weeks, they embrace them wrongly as a license to be lazy and unloving or as a license to excuse worldliness. God sees how we move after we come to faith in Christ and we will be accountable for every word, every deed, every action. And like Paul encourages the Corinthian church here, we should be about the work of wanting to please him. What troubles me, what troubled me about this Facebook post is the message that's communicated there is that somehow some baggage, heavy yoke of religion to communicate that. That's sad. If that is a heavy yoke of religion to communicate, you should want to please your father, then man, we've got to start ripping pages out of our Bible. Man, that's not heavy yoke of religion. That is a treasure that we have a father that we are family members with now because he's adopted us into his family. And we can, we can bless him in the way that we move and serve. Man, that should set us free. We should celebrate this. We should want to please our Father. Man, that's not a heavy yoke of religion. That's moving beyond the ABCs, frankly, in a more nuanced understanding. Of, I understand how I'm saved. But now that I'm part of his family, man, I want to move in a way that brings glory to him. I want to move in a way that's honorable to him. I want to move in a way that is reflective of me being part of his family because I want to please him. God sees your work. He says it right here. He doesn't miss it. If he did, in fact, that would be unjust, ironically. Those who say it's a heavy yoke to communicate things like this, they're calling God unjust, that he would miss how you move. The third thing, let's look again at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Work and love have a trajectory. That's the third thing. Work and love have a trajectory. It's cool to me and encouraging to me that the trajectory of the work here is communicated as if it is Godward. I have a little image that I've drawn in the side of my, in the margin of my notes here that has a little rifle shooting a bullet. I, I started to draw one for y'all. Thought you'd be a real treasure. But I'll just describe it to you. A rifle shooting a bullet, and the bullet's aimed at God, and then right beyond God is another target. We're going to look at that in a minute. But let's clearly communicate that the trajectory of these, this work and this love is first Godward. 
I don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but it sounds very familiar to me. Listen to this passage in Matthew chapter 25. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What a blessing here that he communicates to us. The Hebrews preacher communicates to that church. We get to enjoy this together, that working and loving Man, that's like working and loving God. And we are blessing God. We are doing these things to God. What a treasure that we have. Man, the little target just beyond God's name, you know, the little image I drew, got the rifle pointed, the bullet fires out the gun, it goes toward God's name, and then beyond that is the saints target is the people of God ultimately. Galatians chapter 6 6 verse 10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Man, take that little image with you and see that this thing is first Godward, pointing toward God's name. The work and love for the saints is first Godward, but who's on the receiving end of that blessing? Who's the target there? Saints, especially. When I was in seminary and after reading articles and things like that, but especially when I was in seminary, faced reading a lot of things that had to do with church planting and trying to help a church planter develop his mission statement and his view of what kind of church he wanted to plant, like he had a choice, like he's going to somehow design something. It's kind of laughable now, but I, I get it. I understand what they're doing there. The things that I came in contact with often was this message, or the message I came in contact often with is that your church will either be evangelistic or it'll be good at taking care of one another. You're either gonna be a blessing to each other, or you're gonna be inward focused was the message, or you're gonna be outward focused. Man, the Lord thankfully has set us so free from that. John chapter 17, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible to me where Jesus prays for his disciples. Listen to what he says. This will be familiar to you because we camped out there years ago as a church and it set us free. And I'm gonna explain how in a moment, but listen to this passage. I do not ask for these only, these disciples he's praying for on the the night of his arrest. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, in a clause, the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, the treasure there, if, you're, it, if it's familiar to you, you think back, the word that we considered as a church was the word perichoresis. It's what our early church fathers called the nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Trinity is so interconnected, interinvolved, that it's blurry. Very seldom do you really see distinct movements by one person of the Trinity. It's this blurry movement of this interpenetration, interinvolvement, interlove one for another. And it's beautiful when we began to consider that. What he's praying here is that, Father, I'm praying that they will be in us and in each other as you and I are in each other, that they will be perichoretic 
as you and I are perichoretic. That word perichoresis is to like about dance, to move about, and then choresis is where you get choreography, the dance about, the blurry dance. That they would be a blurry dance of love one for another, interpenetrating, interinvolved, interconnected, interattentive to each other's needs so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want to offer to you this morning that there's not a difference. A church is either going to be evangelistic or it's going to be inward focused. I would offer to you that a church that is perichoretic, that's taking care of one another, that is attentive to each other, that is working for each other and working to bless one another and is serving one another and is loving one another is going to be a city on a hill, boy. That's going to be a salty, bright, aromatic message to a community where people are seeing that and going, whoa, man. That is evangelism because they're going to look at it and say, who doesn't want to be part of that? But ironically, some of the most evangelistic churches are some of the most troubled. Man, I've seen it time and time again. Man, we, have a, we love the lost, but we hate the found. Man, I've heard it from pastors that supposedly are building these mega churches. I have no use for believers. Show me a lost person. I've heard that verbatim. Scott and I heard it. Man, this sets me free here realizing that it's not one or the other. A church that is doing a good job of working and loving one another is going to be a message to the world. Come walk with God's people. There's blessings with God's people. Just imagine the nation of Israel moving across the wilderness. It's a message that says, come move with us and you will, you will have food that falls from the sky. <laughs> You'll see Moses strike a rock and you'll have something to drink. If a lion or a Hittite or Jebusite comes against you, you got people surrounding you. You got an army right behind you. There are blessings in walking with the people of God. That's evangelism. And that's what takes place here. We have an evangelistic message to our community when needs are met and wisdom is found and there's kinship, partnership, and friendship and fellowship in the church because we are working and loving well, especially those among the household of faith. Man, not exclusively. Hear me say that. Especially. Now, the fourth thing is that work and love beget work and love. I mentioned this briefly as we were unpacking the passage. Work and love appear in this passage to beget work and love, and they appear here to fuel Assurance. Listen again to verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool in the 1800s. He said this, it's a nice quote. I bless God that our salvation in no wise depends on our own works. We've established that, right? Ephesians 2. One through nine, effectively. But I never would have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living. I just like how he said it. Old, old dudes, just, I like the way they talk. I like that. What's being communicated in this passage that we can enjoy and connect to 
is that if we are to have the full assurance of hope, if this thing is to be filling up over the course of our lifetime, if assurance is to be increasing in our lifetime, then our love must be increasing. And our service for God's people, those go together. Listen again to the passage that we read earlier. I'll read it one more verse this time. We looked at it briefly, and I'm there already, so you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Recall former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. This is your fruit. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You want confidence and assurance? That's where it comes from. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, absolute assurance and confidence comes in knowing that every single sin was paid for on that cross, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not because there's anything special about us. In fact, he chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So he's, he's chosen the least likely to succeed to set his love on. Fishermen, tax collectors, you, me. So there's no room for haughtiness or pride here. But man, when you see what he's done here, gracious. I had a thought there that just completely popped out of my head. So if it's incomplete, there, you just, maybe you can make, it, make up the, the last part of that. Have the same love and work that you had at the beginning until the final and full realization of your hope like a gas tank that's being filled up over the course of your lifetime. An assurance and hope gas tank that's being filled up over the course of your lifetime as you work and love. Oh yeah, I know what I was gonna say. Assurance that comes from knowing that your salvation is not because of anything that you've done, but assurance that tells you, I think I'm pretty sure I'm on the train because I'm seeing that I just love God's people and I want to serve God's people. And I want to be poured out as a minister in some way in the life of God's people. Man, that brings assurance. That brings confidence according to this passage that we just looked at in Hebrews 10. Isaiah 58, 10 says this. Scott reminded me of this passage this week. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You want assurance? You want confidence? How about being spent on somebody? How about loving and serving and working among God's people? The last thing in regards to work and love is that work and love for the saints are to continue to the end. At verse 11, the phrase that ends right there, verse 11, to have the full assurance of hope, to have a full gas tank of assurance, until the end. The emphasis here is not only on the quality of the work in this passage, but on the continuing of the work in this passage. Until the end. They are equally important, people of God. Equally important. If you were MVP, in loving and serving the saints at some point, but then you bail on it because you grew sluggish, then you've done exactly what he's taught, what he's warning here against. You've bailed too soon. You could be what he calls here, really refers to here as a sluggard. 
I thought it ironic and interesting that we just worked through the book of Proverbs on Wednesday nights and had a good portion of our time dedicated to the sluggard. Here's what's characteristic to the sluggard according to the book of Proverbs. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Contextually, what that passage would say to me this morning, if in preaching this message about loving and serving the saints and not being sluggish in doing so, but doing it diligently, if you did not then go and do, you would be like vinegar to my teeth and smoke to my eyes as the preacher this morning, as the herald. If I'm not to go walk in that, then I become vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. Man, that's like the opposite of apples of gold and fields of silver. You become an annoyance, if anything, if you don't then go walk and do as a result of this and work and serve. You become like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. But the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not bring it back to his mouth. It's not saying the sluggard's not hungry. It's saying the sluggard doesn't have any follow-through. The sluggard might hear a message like this this morning and say, you know what, I really should do that. Put your hand to the dish, but doesn't follow through with it and bring it back to his mouth. Man, that's lazy. Seriously. That's the language he's using right here. You think a Hebrews church would have had a very established understanding of the many Proverbs having to do with the sluggard? When he uses the word sluggishness, I cannot imagine for a moment that they didn't connect to some of these passages. But here's what the sluggard says. Man, I can't go love and serve the saints because there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets, Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. I can't actually go do that because it's scary out there. There's lions and stuff. They don't even need a good excuse. We'll make one up. There's a million reasons that the sluggard will not follow through on things like this. That must be a special point in the book of Proverbs because it also says it in Proverbs 26. There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street, the sluggard says. That's why I can't go do it. It's scary out there. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. And yet the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The sluggard will say in a million different ways, here's why I can't go do and be what you called us to be in this message this morning, church. The sluggard will have plenty of reasons why they can't. And I hope and pray with the Hebrews preacher, I guess praying and hoping for his church that we'll not be the sluggard, but that we will in fact continue to the end. The sluggard doesn't finish what he starts, but the faithful do. Now, this is where we're going to hit the pause button in the message, and we're going to distribute the elements, and we're going to have the last little wee part of our sermon with our elements in our hands. Now, let me, t- let me give you a little preface here. If you have little ones, and they're wiggling around, and they spill something, then I don't want you to miss out on that. So, shepherds or moms, uh, functional shepherds, whoever it might be of the family, come up and grab a replacement. It's not going to be a long last part of the sermon, but it'll be longer than normal. So if that happens, I still want you to be able to take and eat, okay? Let me, uh, let's go ahead and have our, our uh, elders and deacons distribute the elements and our worship team back up. I'm so encouraged as I'm thinking through these things that have, have to do with work and love for the saints. Just looking through these five things, work and love go with salvation I don't see a rampant um, 
misunderstanding in our body in regards to that. I, we've worked through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 type of thought for a long time. I hope that if, you, uh, if that was illuminating for you this morning that you're encouraged, but I, I want to encourage and affirm Crosspoint that I don't see a, a disconnect there. I see people connecting that. that I think Brad had a sermon from James uh, that he called the, James is a wool book. So that, that concept of not a rule book, but a wool book, that was the title of the sermon. That's got to be the classic best all-time titles of a sermon, a, a wool book, not a rule book. And um, I think that concept has been part of this church for a long time, so I want to affirm you in that. Um, some other things that, that are uh, other things that went down the list of uh, God seeing your work and love, I think we can grow as a church in seeing that. I, I would say as a church, we probably shied away from leaning too much in that direction for fear of somehow be, someone being confused that somehow I'm earning salvation or I'm somehow even contributing to my salvation. So hopefully we're ready for some nuance now, moving beyond the ABCs to see how our work fits with, um, our work and love fit with salvation, our concomitants, and knowing that God sees that, that he's pleased with that. When a deacon does something for a family or a, a pastor or a shepherd or a, a mom or a kid does something for another family member, man, that's a strange notion where a sister blesses a brother or whatever, man. God sees that. He's not oblivious to those sorts of things. That should affirm you and encourage you that he's not uh, oblivious to those sorts of things. Uh, I'm encouraged that work and love have a trajectory, and I believe that trajectory is um, not exclusively, but especially on the people of God, and I think that plays out at Crosspoint. I've never seen a people that take care of each other like we do. And I think in our community, people that hear about it, they're like, What? You guys didn't have money for Christmas gifts and you got this random check from your church family? <laughs> Who does that? I mean, that, that kind of stuff gets around in the community where people are saying, seriously, I've never heard of a church taking care of That's just an example that comes to mind easily. But they, it take place, takes place every single week where our church is taking care of each other. And people want to be part of something like that. Man, that's evangelism at its finest. And y'all are doing a great, let me affirm you praiseworthy, lovely, and commendable. And it's right here among you. Man, gracious. Work and love, beget work and love, and appear to fuel assurance. I don't see a bunch of people wondering from day to day, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? If you do, then you and I need to talk. We need to talk about assurance and how that's, how that's gleaned, how you grab that, how you get that, what to be assured in. I don't see people doubting salvation from day to day even though we're talking about apostasy, for example. I was, expecting, I was expecting some emails and phone calls last week. And really, I, it was affirmation. Now, if you're planning to call me or email me this week in regards to last week's sermon, you can still do that. I'm not now saying somehow communicating that you better not call me because you're weird because the rest of us, we're all good. No, I, I, I'm saying in large part, I wasn't expecting a mass. Hey, wait a minute. Man, I see us, man, our assurance is squarely planted in his work and our alien righteousness. And I see you serving one another. So naturally, your tank is getting full. Man, that's affirming. I want to encourage you in that. And the work and love for the saints that continue to the end, we haven't reached our end yet. Some of us have. Betty Lakey had one of the oldest 
members of Crosspoint. She was one of, a, one of our members that we inherited from Bethel Baptist Church whenever we became a church 10 years ago. And man, she, I have her shoes in my office in a cabinet. I used to have them displayed. Kind of weird to have a lady's set of shoes displayed. But I have another set too. It's from Keith McCord. Somebody that ended well. Some of y'all know Keith or remember Keith. And remember, that dude died well, man. So did Betty Lakey. She moved well. But the rest of us, for large, most, most part, I haven't seen us end. Um, so we can't, we can't really affirm that yet, but we can continue. We can continue. And man, I see people continuing, so I want to affirm that. Working and loving is continuing. The, really, the second part of this sermon, I wanted to give you the, the affirmation of the first part. Uh, and some feedback from the point of view of this pastor, and I think Brad and Scott would agree with each of those thoughts. But the faith and patience, those also belong to salvation. When I'm imagining what Bill and Sally Jones in the Hebrews church in Rome are thinking as they look out the window at the Colosseum being constructed, as they see the Colossus, the bronze statue of Nero, as they see the Roman Forum and they have all the reason in the world as they see their neighbors now hating their guts because they're following Christ, because they're Jewish, and now you're a Messianic Jew, and you've bailed on Yahweh. Man, as I'm imagining Bill and Sally, I can't remember what name I gave them, Bill and Sally Smith. I should have given them Hebrew names, but I can't really think of any for the moment. Here's what, I, here's what I'm hoping and I'm suspecting that they had in them. If faith and patience are characteristic of salvation, Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day in your courts is better than prancing the forum or filling the stadium and the coliseum with the mob. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's faith and patience right there. Man, I can't imagine that there weren't some Hebrew folks some faithful Hebrew folks in this church that weren't grabbing passages like that because that sounds like faith and patience. And some measure of this is concomitant with salvation, a trust and a hope for in the city to come and living not according to exclusively what you see, but trusting in what you don't see. And here's the interesting thing about this sermon, the interesting turn Faith and patience, they seem like they might be something that you just kind of muster, something you might be born with. You know, you become a Christian, then all of a sudden, voila, I'm faithful and patient. You know, maybe it's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, I think patience was listed in there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. They're both listed in there. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Fruit of the Spirit, but let me tell you another way these things come. They come by imitation. They come by imitation. Man, this passage clearly communicates, imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. I have a chair in my office, in my, in my, in my den, that's like my office chair. It's, it's exactly like my office chair, just a different colored uh, leather. And, uh, but it's got this, this arm where I keep my Bible or my computer. It's just like I having a desk chair, you know, like combination desk chair. And I'm sitting in my, my, my desk chair in my den one day. And Daniel, I think, must have been four, maybe, something like that. 
Daniel comes out, and there's, there's room right next to the arm where someone could stand. Actually, my dog hangs out there in the evenings, but this was one day when I was studying, so the dog's not there. Daniel comes in and stands beside me, and I look over at him, and Daniel has like three hairs right here where this eyebrow is, and no hairs where this eyebrow is. <laughs> and he's looking at me kind of proud, and um, I said, Daniel... I mean, I was shocked, as you might expect. I was shocked. It's just not something you expect to see. And I look over and I, Daniel, what in the world? And apparently he had been imitating me shaving. It might be hard to believe that it was a time where I was pretty faithful in shaving. And I used to do it like every day. So Daniel knew where my razor was and he had been in the bathroom and I asked him what happened. He said that he had looked at the razor and that's what happened. (laughs) I said, you looked at it. He said, well, no, I touched it. And then, oh, okay, you just touched it. And then he said, well, I touched it to my head. So progressively, (laughs) but I'm suspecting, you know, he saw me shaving and he's seeing the razor, sees the razor and he's the only hair he's got on his face to deal with is right here. (laughs) So let's, let's plow into it. Man, we learn by imitation. Gracious. There's certainly, there's a long time argued in nature versus nurture. How much is innate and how much is taught? And it's depending on what you're talking about. And this we can see right off the bat. It's listed in the fruit of the Spirit. It's going to come from the life with the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. But it's also going to be something that you imitate, like dad's shaving. It's something that you model. Passage after passage in our New Testament. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, I urge you, Corinthian church, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, and you become imitators of us and of the Lord. For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The message is, if you see someone who's imitatable, If you see someone who figuratively is standing and looking at the Colossus and saying, that will not be my ultimate reality. This is my ultimate reality, God and what he's promised. Imitate that joker. Imitate that one. Man, that's imitatable. And what the beauty is, you will learn some of that as you imitate it. Man, it's weird in our context that the original is lauded whether it's you go to an antique store, an original something's more valuable than an imitation, or whether it's American Idol, you know, whoever's the most original one is going to win. Original sound, original, you know, whatever. Man, originality is what's important to us in our context, but we got to know we see with a different set of eyes. And we learn by imitation. It's the way babies learn. It's the most organic thing in the world. It's not inauthentic. It doesn't come any more organic than that. Imitate the imitatable. Now, I thought this would be a nice place for us to end as we're about to take the supper. I'm glad that you guys have been able to hold on there to your elements. Uh, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, and I will read from something that Paul shared with the Corinthian church that was given to him by Christ. It was interesting. In some ways, he is imitating what's been given to him. Listen to this passage. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a remembrance and there's an anticipation in every single meal. The thing that I like about it being at this point in light of, in some ways, response to the imitating by faith and patience, you have kids sitting next to you or you have young people sitting next to you that now have an opportunity to imitate mom and dad or to imitate big brother or big sister or to imitate the people that are sitting in front of you or behind you who are trusting in the promises to come as they take and drink and eat. This is a weekly practice of living according to what we are trusting is coming, who are being faithful and patient. It is a faithful, patient meal because it's, it's, it's just a little wee piece of bread. It's a little wee tiny cup. But it's, it's, it's reminding us of what he's done and it's something we do each week to anticipate what he has yet to do. And man, we can imitate each other. We can imitate the faithful who are making a beeline for this each week. I will not miss this. It doesn't look like the Colossus. It doesn't look like the Forum. It looks like a wee piece of bread and a little tiny, little insignificant, unimportant cup. But I don't see with those set of eyes. I see with a different set of eyes. I'm living and walking by faith, trusting that this is a promise of a treasure coming. That will be ruins. This will not. Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink. Or I just have an additional thought that I thought it'd be better if you're sitting down. Um, let me encourage you in something. You know, talked about something maybe some of you never heard before, perichoresis. This interpenetration, interinvolvement, interconnectedness between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He prayed the night before his crucifixion is the next day. He prays for his his disciples that they would be in each other and in him as he and the Father are in each other. And prayed that those, remember he prayed not only for them, but for those who would believe through their work and their message. That's us. So let me encourage you in something. If you're like, man, okay, I don't want to be a sluggard. I want to work in response to salvation, clarifying, in response to salvation. I want to bear wool in response to who I am but I don't really know who to serve or how to serve. That's going to be hard to do if you're not perichoretic with God's people in any way. You're like, man, I don't really know how to serve or who to serve, but I don't, if you don't really know anybody, you don't really know what's going on in people's lives, then that's a good place to start. The way that we are involved in each other's lives. Now, the elders, we're involved in everybody's life to some degree, varying degrees, depending on what's going on in your lives. The deacons likely would be that way too. But the way that we walk really closely with other families the McGraws is in small group. Man, it's not like a program. I mean, it's, it's just the way that we try to figure out how can we really be part of each other's lives in a meaningful way? How can we somehow be perichoretic to the point where you can hear about a need in another family? You can hear about a need in another family that you can be praying about because you can have it on your radar and you can bring it into the throne room on their behalf. Man, that's loving and serving each other. That's bearing wool. And the way, only way you can do that is if you're walking with people in a meaningful way where they know you and you know them. So 
So I encourage you, man, if you're like, golly, I don't, you know, I don't really know where to begin. Begin with being known and knowing. You, you can't do this virtually. You have to, it's incarnate. You have to get up next to people. So I encourage you. It may, it'll mean a night of the week. We have a couple of small groups, or at least one I know for sure, meet on Sunday night. If a weeknight is just impossibility, and there, there really isn't a good excuse to not make this a priority. I encourage you to not be sluggish. I, I promise you, too, you're going to be thinking about lines in the street. Here's why I can't do that. There's a line outside. I don't, I don't like to be known. Maybe they won't like me if they know me. You won't like me if you get to know me. <laughs> My wife doesn't like me sometimes, man. I mean, seriously, it's, it's beyond that. It's not a matter of being liked or liking. It's becoming family. So I encourage you to do that. I'm joking about Christy. She loves me. So, All right, y'all stand, and I'm going to dismiss us with a benediction. All right? There's some great benedictions in our Bibles, and this one is just very appropriate based on where we've been this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Y'all have a great week.